0: seeing in Him glory and grace and power, seeing in Him the fulfillment of all of God's promises concerning the Messiah. And really this theme is continuing on into chapter 2, where now in chapter 2 we are seeing more of the glory of Christ, particularly in this miracle, or as John calls it, this sign that Jesus does at a wedding so i want to read this morning from john chapter 2 verses 1 to 11 john writes there under the inspiration of the holy spirit on the third day there was a wedding at cana in galilee and the mother of jesus was there jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. Each holding twenty or thirty gallons, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, they filled them up to the brim, and He said to them, now draw some out, and take it to the master of the feast, so they took it, and the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. When people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Would you pray with me? Father, from thousands upon thousands of years ago, You spoke through Your prophets, through Your great prophet Moses, through the patriarchs before Him, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, through the prophets after Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. You spoke through them and you warned of your coming judgment against your people because of their idolatry and sinfulness. And you also told to them of a day that would come when after judgment they would be delivered from all wrath, from all of their sin. They would be rescued and that this rescue would come through a single man. Your Christ. Your Messiah, Your appointed King, who would bring the fulfillment of all of Your great and glorious promises. Father, we see in Jesus, and Your disciples see and saw in Jesus the fulfillment of all of these promises. We see in Christ, Lord, that You are a God who when You speak, You speak truth. And You do everything You say You will do. Father, I pray that this morning we would see in Christ not just some miracle worker, but that we would see in Jesus the promised Christ of God, the very Son of God who in Himself has authority to give life to us. Father, we pray that You would illuminate Your Word for us this morning by Your Spirit. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A person doesn't really have to read very much of the Bible to discover that the way it communicates the revelation of God to us comes in a diverse amount of ways. The Bible is not like reading a biography. It's not like reading a book of poetry. It's not like reading a book on some subject of history. It's not like reading a memoir. It's like reading all of these put together. It's a book, a single book, comprised of 66 different books with a whole host of different authors spanning a roughly 2,000 year period of time. Each biblical writer has his own personality. Each writer has his own style of communication. And each writer has his own purpose for writing the books that he wrote. And what the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 is that all scripture is breathed out by God. In all of its diversity, there is a single author. In all of its different authors, there is a single author behind them all. God himself literally breathing out the words of scripture through his appointed Prophets and Apostles. Therefore, there is a single author communicating a singular message through a diversity of ways. God has given to the world, in the Bible, revelation. And in this revelation, the gates of heaven have been opened to the world and we are able to see and to know who God is and what He has done in the world, as well as what He is continuing to do in the world to this day. In His revelation, He speaks to us in poetry. He speaks to us with history. He speaks to us with letters. He speaks to us with commandments. He speaks to us with prophecy. One of the more interesting ways He reveals His plans to us is not just through what certain prophets said, but through what they did. In the Old Testament, for example, we see several occasions where the prophets are literally acting out what God is communicating to His people. Their lives... Became a parable, in a sense, about the relationship between God and his people. So for example, a very famous occasion, most people are at least somewhat familiar with is the example of the prophet Hosea. The very beginning of the book of Hosea chapter one, God comes to Hosea, Hosea, and commands him to take a wife. Literally, a wife of harlotry. God is commanding Hosea to take a woman who is known among the people of God as being promiscuous and unfaithful. And He wants Hosea to take this kind of woman as his own wife. He wants him to marry her and thus enter into a covenant with her and even start a family with her. To have children with her. And this whole relationship that God calls Hosea to have with this woman is meant to symbolize the relationship that God Himself has entered into with the people of Israel. Which means that the picture He is communicating in the life of Hosea is a picture of unfaithfulness. God is the bridegroom. He has out of His freedom and mercy and care and love entered into a covenant relationship with the Israelites and they are pictured as being the harlot. God has saved them, rescued them from their enemies and yet despite His love and care they have continued to go after other gods to serve them follow them. And the result of them following these other gods is nothing but sin. Bloodshed, unfaithfulness, corruption. So in Hosea's life, you have a picture of the relationship between God and His people, and it is, a communi- it is communicating judgment to His people. Well, as you continue to read In Hosea as well, by the time you get to chapter 3, you also see in Hosea's life a picture of grace. Because later God, after Hosea's wife has continued to be unfaithful to him, God tells Hosea to to go to his wife and to redeem her, to forgive her, to bring her back, to love her, which is then a picture of what God will do for his people. Despite all of their unfaithfulness and sin, he will redeem his people. God was speaking to His people through a prophet, literally acting out His message. This is very often the case of what God does in the Old Testament. But just as God would sometimes give revelation through a prophet's actions, so also do we find Jesus giving revelation through His own actions. But unlike the prophets who pointed to God, who pointed forward to God by their actions, Jesus in His life was revealing that He Himself was God. That's what we see taking place in John chapter 2 this morning. In our text that we are looking at, Jesus doesn't say much. What he does say is certainly very important, but it's his actions here and what other people say about his actions that's the focus. This is of course the account Jesus turns the water into wine. But John doesn't tell us about this miracle so that we might just conclude that Jesus is some miracle worker, or some magician this is the judgment that some of the jews had of him that he was perhaps indeed a prophet but uh, perhaps only just some worker of wonderful works john doesn't want us to reach that conclusion though he says in verse 11 that this was the first of jesus's signs and that by the sign he manifested his glory John prefers to call Jesus' miraculous works signs because they are not just meant to impress us, but to reveal the glory of God to us in the person of Jesus. They are intended to make us reflect deeply on what we have witnessed, on what we have heard. They are intended to draw our minds back back to the promises made long ago in the Old Testament so that we might see in Jesus these promises being fulfilled in Him. So that we might come to believe that He is the promised Christ of God. So I want to look at this sign this morning in three different parts in the hope that as we Look at what Jesus has done in his actions, we might see the glory of God in him and with his disciples entrust everything that we are into him. Verses 1 to 4, we're going to see a delay of grace first. And then in verses 5 to 10, we will see a truth foretold. And then finally in verse 11, a Christ reveal. That is the movement through the text. Chapter 2 begins a few days after Jesus had called Philip and Nathanael to follow Him. It says in verse 1, if you look at there, on the third day, which is the third day relative to Jesus entering into Galilee and calling Philip and Nathanael to follow him. So from chapter 1, beginning with John the Baptist preaching that he is not the Christ and pointing to the coming of the Christ and pointing to Jesus as the Lamb of God, from the beginning of chapter 1 with John the Baptist up until this point on the third day, a week has passed. We are now on the seventh day of of the week. And on this seventh day, we find Jesus, His mother, and disciples being invited to a wedding. Because it was it was all of them, and it was Jesus and His mother, many believe that this is probably a wedding of someone that they knew, some family member, some friends, someone that they knew rather closely. And So they are invited to this wedding and they go to it. Now, at this time in the ancient Near East and in this Jewish culture, weddings were a very big deal. They're they're a big deal today, right? We have great celebrations, but they normally only last a day or, or perhaps only a few hours out of the day. But during this time, a wedding could last up to a week. It was a grand celebration. And for the groom, there was a financial responsibility he had to make sure that everyone was taken care of, that there was plenty of food, and most especially that there was plenty of wine for the celebration. The responsibility fell on him. If the groom, by chance... fell from this duty and was not able to provide the amount of wine, the amount of refreshments, the amount of food that was needed, it would be a great embarrassment to him. Uh, In fact, even more than it being an embarrassment, it could possibly have led to him being sued. There was a reputation that was on the line, not only for the groom but for his bride and his bride's family. This was a celebration that was to indicate the fact that the groom could take care of his wife. So if he ran out of the provisions that were needed during the wedding, certainly he could face great embarrassment, but there was even more a threat of being sued. So in verse 3, when Jesus' mother comes to him and says they have no wine, she's not just pointing out a fact. She is genuinely concerned. This is the concern that you could imagine a mother would have if her son or even her daughter was about to be greatly embarrassed. She is deeply concerned about what is taking place here. As I said before, the wedding was probably for someone she knew closely. So she doesn't want them to be embarrassed. She doesn't want there to be any potential consequences. And so she goes to her son and she tells him they have no wine, hinting for him to do something about it. Now in the text, and up to this point, there's no indication that Jesus' mother is expecting him to perform any great miracle. John says this is the first sign that He does at the beginning of His ministry. So, probably all Mary is asking Jesus to do is to use the resources that she knows He has. He has disciples that are beginning to follow Him. Follow Him as a teacher. He has grown up in this community, so she's probably desiring that He use His Connections around the community, His natural resources to remedy the problem that has arisen. Moreover, if Jesus complies with His mother's wishes and acquires more wine for the wedding, He's going to be praised for saving the wedding. He's going to become the hero. He's going to be the guy who uses his resources and connections to deal with the issue that has arisen. And you can just imagine if, he, if the, the wedding had run out of wine and then all of a sudden Jesus comes in and brings all of this wine to restore what had, what had run out, the bridegroom, the bride, the rest of the family would have then praised Jesus for this kind gesture. It's for this reason that Jesus replies to his mother the way he does in verse 4. He says to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. You see, Jesus is not being rude here or giving some careless rebuke to his mother. He is taking this moment of panic and desperation to begin teaching about His ultimate mission. The very reason why He is on this earth. As we read in the rest of the Gospel, we find that when Jesus speaks of His hour, He is speaking of the appointed time when He will be crucified. Through that crucifixion, He's going to bear in His own body the sin of His people from all the nations and thus receive glory for accomplishing salvation. That is ultimately how Jesus is going to be glorified in the world. It's only as we come to John chapter 12, after the Greeks begin to seek Jesus, that Jesus says, the hour has come. Come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Leading up to chapter 12, it's it's what we read here. My hour has not yet come. The hour for Me to be glorified, the hour for Me to be praised has not yet arrived. This hour Jesus speaks of, His death followed by His resurrection is the very purpose. Jesus entered into the world That was his mission and that was how he would be glorified. So when his mother hints towards him saving the wedding by acquiring some wine and consequently receiving some glory from it, he takes this moment as an opportunity to teach about his greater mission to receive glory. He refuses initially to comply with her wish in order to begin preparing her as well as His disciples for the way in which He will ultimately be glorified. And it is in this refusal, this initial refusal, that we learn a principle of God's dealings with us. That very often, the grace we desire is delayed. But it's not necessarily denied. Very often, God delays His grace with us. But that does not mean that it is denied. As we see in this text and as we continue reading through it, what we find is that Jesus initially refuses his mother's request. He doesn't fulfill it in the way she was desiring him to fulfill it. But just a few verses later, we do see him bringing wine to the wedding. But again, not in the way that she was expecting. He does so in a far greater way. He provides wine to the wedding in a miraculous way by taking water and transforming it into something brand new, into new wine. So He complies after an initial delay in order to bring more glory to Himself. We see this also taking place later on in the Gospel of John in chapter 11 with the death of Lazarus. In John chapter 11, we find that Jesus is away from Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Lazarus has fallen ill. Mary and Martha, his sisters, send word to Jesus. At this time, they know Jesus can heal him. They have seen Jesus heal the sick. They have seen Him heal the lame. They have seen Him work mighty wonders that can only be performed by God Himself. And so so they know, our brother has fallen ill. Jesus can take care of it. They are desiring for the grace of Christ to come to Lazarus. So they send word to Jesus. Jesus, come your, your friend, the one whom you love, the one whom we love, has fallen ill. Come and heal him. What we read in John chapter 11, verses 5 and 6, is this. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when He heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. He loved Mary and Martha. And he loved Lazarus. And so his action is when he hears that Lazarus has fallen ill, he delays. He does not comply initially. What we find that eventually happens is that Lazarus dies Mary and Martha, at this point, are roughly hopeless. They believe that Jesus has the power to resurrect the dead, but that this is nothing that's going to take place here and now. This is only going to take place later on down the road. So they are weeping. They have lost their brother and they knew that Jesus could have done something about it. And yet, we find Jesus delaying. Why does He delay? He delays so that after those few days of delaying when He comes, and it is absolutely clear that Lazarus is dead, when He raises Him from the dead, it will be utterly clear that He is the One who has the power over life and death. Jesus, by waiting to give grace to Lazarus and Mary and Martha by waiting to do that is ultimately going to receive even more glory. And He's going to bring even more joy than Mary and Martha could have even imagined. Would it not have been great if Jesus had come and healed Lazarus? Yes, indeed it would. Would it not have been even better that He delayed to manifest His glory in an even greater way. The same can be said about our own experiences as well. God often delays His grace, but His delay of grace is not a denial of grace. Our desire ultimately is to experience the salvation of Jesus in an ultimate sense. Our desire is to be freed completely from sin. Our desire is to have new bodies that cannot die, that cannot be affected by sin any longer. Our great hope and desire is for Jesus to summon all of the dead to live and to bring in His kingdom right now. That is a grace that we seek and hope Yet, day after day, week after week, year after year, it is delayed. Now this leads some to the conclusion that the gospel and the hope of the resurrection is a farce. In fact, if you read in Second Peter, this is one of the, the ways that Peter says people will mock in the latter days. Every week, every day has gone on over and over as it's always gone. Jesus has not come. The dead have not been raised. Why do you worship this Jesus? There's no resurrection. That's one conclusion we could come to by seeing this delay. And Jesus certainly could have come 2,000 years ago. He could have come 1,000 years ago. But imagine the glory that He will receive when thousands upon thousands of people, millions upon millions, over a course of thousands of years, will be raised from the dead when He comes at His appointed time. It is far greater for God and far more glorifying for Him to raise the dead over the span of thousands of years than to raise the dead over just a couple of decades. The way that God acts, the way that God deals with us is that He grants us grace that will maximize our joy and satisfaction in Him while at the same time maximizing His own glory. He wants us to see Him as He truly is. The true God, ultimately satisfying and beautiful. And we only see this when God does the impossible. So God often delays His grace. He delays His grace that we cry out for so that when He does finally answer it, we will praise Him all the more we ought not to confuse grace delayed with a grace denied this is what we begin to see in the beginning of chapter 2 here where jesus delays complying with his mother's request as we come to verses 5 to 10 we see a truth foretold a truth foretold after jesus answers his mother She submits herself to His judgment and then instructs the servants at the wedding to do whatever He tells them to do. And it's at this moment that Jesus performs a sign. We read that there were these six jars for the Jewish rites of purification. And these jars all together could have held in them about 100 to 150 gallons of of water. And Jesus speaks to the servants and he instructs them, I want you to, to fill these jars up with water. And so they do. They fill them up with water. It says they fill them up to the brim. And then after they filled these jars up with the water, he instructs them, now take these, draw some of this water out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they comply with this command as well. And when they take it to the master of the feast, The master of the feast does not realize that the wine he's about to drink was actually water. It was only the servants who had known what was actually in these jars. It was only the servants who had seen the water become wine. But the master receives some of this water now become wine in verse 9. So this great miracle has taken place and these servants no doubt are probably confused what exactly has just occurred. And then notice what the master of the feast says. Again, he he doesn't realize that a miracle has taken place. The master calls the bridegroom over, and he says in verse 10, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. You have kept the good wine until now. Now why does John record these words of the Master for us here? He could have recorded all different kinds of reactions. I'm sure the servants were talking back and forth about what they had just witnessed. And he could have recorded that. I'm sure his mother was greatly satisfied that now there were provisions for this wedding. And he could have recorded that. But he records these particular words of the Master of the Feast for a certain reason. Why these words? Well, I think John wants us to see here in these words the Master of the Feast speaking better than he knew. He's speaking better than he knew. He didn't realize that this water had become wine, but he's saying something here that John wants us to see. And I believe it is that he wants us to see the Master speaking a truth better than he knew. This is something we see taking place throughout the rest of the Gospel of John. For example, in John chapter 11, We have this, of course, great scene of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Many of the Jews had witnessed this and because of this great miracle, many of the Jews began to believe in Jesus. How could you not believe in Jesus? He just raised a man from the dead. But there were some who felt threatened by what they saw Jesus doing. Namely, the Pharisees and some of the chief priests. And so in John chapter 11, after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead, we find the Pharisees and the chief priests beginning to conspire against Jesus. They have to do something about Him. All of the people, the the populace are going to Jesus, and this for them is a threat. And it's a threat... Because the people are believing that Jesus is the Messiah. And at the time, to believe that the Messiah had come was to believe that the king had come who was going to give ultimate deliverance from the Roman authorities. The Pharisees and the chief priests had an end with the Roman authorities. They had security with the Roman authorities. And so if the people are beginning to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, they might be a threat to the Romans and the Romans might squash them all. The Jews feel threatened, so they begin to conspire against Jesus. Well, in the midst of them going back and forth on what to do about Jesus, the high priest Caiaphas... Rebukes all of them and insists that Jesus must die. He says in verse 49, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Then John makes this interesting comment in verse 51. He says, he did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. John is saying that Caiaphas spoke better than he knew At the time, he was only concerned about saving the nation from what he perceived to be an earthly threat. The threat of the Roman authorities. But when he said what he did, he actually spoke truth about what Jesus had to do. Namely, he had to die to save the nation not from the roman authorities but from ultimate judgment because of their sin in the same way the master of the feast in john chapter 2 is speaking better than he knew he is only focused on the present and unique experience of enjoying the best wine last but his words have more truth in them than he even realizes. He doesn't even know that the wine he is drinking is the result of a divine miracle. He's simply speaking about its abundance and nothing beyond. John quotes him because he's actually speaking a deeper truth about the arrival of the age of the Messiah. This is why John says in verse 11 that this was the first of Jesus' signs and that through it He manifested His glory. Jesus in this moment revealed Himself as the Christ and thus the One who has brought in the age of the Messiah. You see, the Jews had been waiting for the Messiah to come for hundreds and thousands of years they had expectations about what this Messiah would do. They knew from the promises that God had given to the patriarchs that when this Messiah comes, He's going to bring both blessings to all the nations as well as judgment to all the nations. They knew that He was going to bring in an eternal kingdom because the Messiah was going to be the offspring of David, and David was promised that one of his offspring would reign forever. They knew that when the Messiah came, they would be saved from all of their earthly enemies. And they knew as well that the Messiah would bring in somehow the forgiveness of their own sin. Very often as well, when the prophets spoke about the coming of the Messiah, and the day and age that would characterize that time they described the messiah as ushering in an age of abundance and fruitfulness and feasting and celebration and with all of this celebrating there would be an abundance of wine flowing wine that is the picture of the day of the christ so for example text we read earlier in Isaiah chapter 25. Pretty much leading up to Isaiah 25, it's been nothing but doom and gloom. The people of God, the people of Judah have been rebelling against God. They've been worshipping idols. And over and over, God is warning them, if you continue down this path, if you continue following these other gods, taking advantage of the poor and the helpless, if you continue down this path, the same fate that's going to happen to Israel will happen to you. You will be judged and sent into exile. And so Isaiah is constantly warning the people of a coming judgment. As well, he's, he's warning the other nations, the nation of Moab and the nation of the Egyptians, that if they do not repent, from their own sin, judgment will come. After Isaiah has explained that the Lord will judge the entire earth, we come to Isaiah chapter 25. And in this chapter, we read of some great promises to come. Namely, the greatest of them all is the day when death itself Will be defeated. We read in Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8, He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. But right before this great promise, this, this ultimate defeat of death itself, Isaiah says in verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wine. Of rich food full of marrow. Of aged wine well refined. This is what the age of the Messiah would be. A day of feasting. A day of celebrating. A day of flowing wine and John is quoting the master of the feast that the good wine is being provided in abundance to say that the Christ has been revealed in the person of Jesus John wants us to see that Jesus has brought in the day of the Messiah and so the question then becomes what will you do with this knowledge God has given all of these indications that when His chosen and anointed King comes, He is going to usher in a day that culminates in a final victory over death itself. He has promised to the world that when His Messiah comes, He is bringing in a day when the forgiveness of sins will go out freely to all of the nations. And now John is saying, Jesus has brought that day in. He is the One who has brought overflowing wine. What will you do with that knowledge? Jesus' disciples, as we see at the end of verse 11, responded rightly. They responded how we ought to respond. They perceived very small measure, but nevertheless they perceived that the Christ was here in Jesus. And we read there that the disciples believed in Him. That's what John wants us to see here. This This is not a belief, friends. This is not a belief where we just, we just assent in our heads to the fact that the Christ has come. And then we move on. This is the kind of belief where we entrust everything we are into this singular person, Jesus. This is the kind of belief exercised by the disciples where they left everything to follow this man. This is the kind of belief that eventually would lead them to be the great apostles, the foundations of the church, those who would go out into the nations proclaiming the good news that the Christ has come even at a great consequence to their own lives because it was worth it. it. was worth it. And it's worth it, friends, because God has done something brand new in the world. The world, friends, is a dark place. You don't need me to convince you of that. We can look around and see it. The great cloud that surrounds us all is death itself we've all experienced. John is saying is that when this age of the Messiah comes, death is defeated. The great day of life has entered. And the curse is lifted. The hope that the world is without is now found in Christ. Friends, this is all the reason why we are to entrust ourselves in Jesus. Who else among men can give us a better hope? tell you, no presidential candidates will do that. No kings, no political systems, nothing of this world can give us that kind of hope. The hope we need is found in Jesus because he is the king of righteousness who has victory over the grave itself. This is the conclusion John wants us to come to. Jesus is the giver of of the feast and the one who brings in the age of the Messiah. Friends, let us submit ourselves to Him and with the joy of His disciples bow our knees to the great King who will give us life everlasting. Would you pray with me? Father, we rejoice that the day of the Lord in part has come. That we have been given a foretaste of the great renewal of all things in Jesus. That we can see in Jesus one who has power over the grave and One who promises us that if we but trust in Him, we also will live forever. You have not left us wondering what is to come. You have shown it to us in Your Son. So Lord, I pray that we would look to Christ to see our great hope. That our hearts would be Pricked with the realities to come so that we would be stirred on to love and good works. We would be bold to go out from here and to tell people the good news. The news that is truly good and life-giving. Father, grant us the joy that Your disciples experienced when they saw that You were the Christ. Grant us the belief gives us the power and boldness to go out from here and to proclaim the glory of Your name, I pray in Jesus' name.